Untitled Beatles podcast. Wait, let's do a couple more. We have a few minutes. Three, two, one. Hey, uh... <laughs> After the count of two. Here we go. Um, Hey, Tony, what kind of music you into, man? Oh, man, I like all kinds of music. What about you? I like a band called The Beatles. They're kind of underground and niche and there aren't many podcasts about them. The Wuddles? Uh, yeah, the Wuddles are great, too. They're the Beach Boys parody band. They sing a song called Wouldn't It Be Mice about a mouse invasion in your home. I love that. There's a band called The Beatles that's really great and really gear, and their albums aren't reissued in deluxe vi- version vinyls and vinyl versions like a vinyl version. You gotta listen. I, I gotta hear about this band. Where can I listen to this band? This How can I find out... I've got to find out more about this band. How can I find out more about this band? (laughs) Well, uh, as mentioned previously, life is still busy, so we're going to keep giving you these nice uh, reissues. We've decided that they're nice. And, uh, yeah, so they've got extra little drops and goodies, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy them. And welcome to Untitled Beatles Podcast. I'm Tony Mendoza. I'm TJ Shanoff. And Tony, it's our 250th episode. So this I know. Is a big, it's a big deal. It is. It's our 250th episode and our one million and one-th minute. Yes, thank you. And our two millionth listeners. So to all two million of you, we promise to get back to you with handwritten thank you notes. No, what are we? We're on about our fifth or sixth episode. I've lost track because of the edibles. <laughs> I too have lost track. I don't know. <laughs> it's either five or six. You're, you're right. Okay. Well, I think welcome. it's five. Thank you. Thank you. How, how are you, sir? I'm great. This is we, we record these uh, Fridays early afternoon, Chicago time. Tony, you're in L.A. late morning. Uh, yes. The times vary, but the last couple weeks you've been doing this. And it's like the highlight. I feel like it's a weekend kickoff. I don't have one today, but I've cracked a beer at noon on a Friday just because we're talking Beatles. I, I love it. Well, good day to you. I got my coffee. I'm ready to talk. I thought we would talk about how we discovered the Beatles, you know, those first moments when you first hear this group. And, you know, this is a group that we've both loved for most of our lives. Yeah. And it's like, why this group and this kind of a thing, you know? So I thought I'd just go through that that fun of those memories of when you first heard them. It's a great call. And it's one of those things that I wish I've wished this many times because I got into them so young and we'll get into that. I wish I could go back and feel what I felt that moment. I heard their music uh, and we'll get into this later, but in my case, the touring version of the musical Beatlemania in Chicago in the late 70s was my big thing. Beatlemania is playing to standing ovations across the country, and here's why. Yeah, I never saw the Beatles in person, but I feel like I have now. They look like them, they sound like them. It's very visual. Visual effects are really the last word. Beatlemania starts August 7th for limited engagement at the Schubert Theater. Tickets at the box office, Ticketron, or call 977-1700 for telecharge. I think it physically and emotionally changed me. I don't think I've ever been the same. So to your point, that feeling of discovery and putting this piece together, I can't wait to hear your story and I'll get into mine a little bit too. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head there. It's like there's this group and I think we're always trying to recapture, like if we could listen to them for the first time again, we would because I think... In buying all these reissues and your yellow submarine socks and <laughs> and uh, love in Las Vegas, which has now been running for about what fifteen years or something. Is that right? I gotta see that. Uh, I haven't seen that. What does that cost? Well, like a hundred bucks or something? It's I, I've only gone because I do so much corporate theater stuff in Vegas. I've only gone uh, attached to work. It's all like a eighty. It was last time I saw it. It was like eighty five bucks, maybe a hundred. And it's worth every penny of it. But yeah, we'll I live like five hours from there. I should just go, you know. Are they back up and running? Oh, right. <laughs> Although Vegas, that mayor's fucking insane, right? That 81-year-old woman. <laughs> yeah, like, she's like, kill everybody. Open yeah, it up. Like, she's like, I'm happy for us to be a Petri dish, you know. But, but Vegas already is a Petri dish. I've spent many <laughs> times in Vegas. I used to gamble all night long. True story yeah. that's changed uh, since I've been a kid and been married. But... Yeah, Vegas Vegas is yucky anyway. 
If there's that restaurant where if you weigh over 300 pounds, you get a free hamburger or something <laughs> like that. I mean, oh, you mean every restaurant? <laughs> Um, I think we should start with you uh, seeing Beatlemania. The, this is the group that they, it was not the Beatles, asterisk, but an incredible simulation. Yeah, asterisk and ellipses. I think they double punctuated it for effect. Not the Beatles, <laughs> asterisk, dot, 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 but an incredible simulation. Got to book and... in that, punctu- that punctuation. <laughs> Rule of twos and punctuation <laughs> for you uh, Merriam-Webster nerds. Um Love Miriam Webster. That was Webster's mom on the ABC <laughs> oh, knockoff yeah, she, of different strokes. She wore those uh, those onesies I liked so much. <laughs> and sometimes those twosies. <laughs> We could go deep. I was actually, my parents were once called into my Hebrew school, Temple Sholem in uh, the Chicago's North Side. Because I would make offensive jokes, apparently, and we had to give a, uh, there was a Bible presentation, and I was supposed to report on Isaac, I think I was eight or nine, and I referred to him as the bartender on the love boat, (laughs) and my parents were actually called about, like, you know, we can't have this, and my parents were like, I think it's a good bit. Hey, man, this is Isaac Washington. I mean, yeah, I know I'm just a bartender, and she's a star, but you gotta know her. I mean, she's not like a star. She's like a woman. And they took me out of Sunday school. True story. So, yes, Beatlemania started, uh, it was a Broadway show in the late 70s, 78, I think, so it premiered on Broadway. Uh, It was wildly successful. It did not have the authorization of, I don't think Apple was in existence at the time as a working all with other lawsuits, but it did not have the blessing of the Beatles. This was eight years after the breakup. So just enough time had gone by, and this is way before the dawn of cover bands playing everywhere. And uh, much respect to cover. One of my favorite bands in the city of Chicago is a cover band called Tributosaurus, where they take bands and they don't do the costumes of the bullshit. They just ape the sounds and orchestration of that band perfectly. Whatever the song calls for, they have a choir, a string section, all that. I've seen them. They're great. And they, they, yeah, they do a, a new band like every month or something like that. And one month they're Stevie Wonder, and one month they're Yes, and then they're Steely Dan. So their their yeah. whole thing is great. So nothing against cover bands, but or cover when you ba- say cover bands, you probably mean like tribute bands, right? Because there's always been cover bands or whatever, blah blah blah. But this is like the first group that just dedicate themselves to one of the first to dedicate that is themselves. A, a great point. Yes, before tribute bands were ubiquitous. Yes, 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 uh, and. It was a Broadway show that played where Cats later played in New York, the Winter Garden. The Winter Theaters. Garden, yeah. So not an off-Broadway thing. It was right in the heart of you know uh, Midtown of uh, the uh, with theater district, and it was huge, right? So there was a, there was a national tour that came to Chicago. I, th- I I wish we had the ticket stub. It's got to exist somewhere. But they were in Chicago, I think, in if my memory serves, the summer of '79. Now at the time, I was five years old. Right. And I was super weird into music and particularly a movie, a minor movie by the name of Grease, which had come out the summer of 78, played at a theater near where I grew up called the Esquire in Chicago. Great theater on Oak yeah. Street. And my mother took me to see Grease in a year and a half. This is not fudged. 14 times we saw Grease. Whoa, man. That was my weird thing. I wasn't, I, I Star Wars was great. All that stuff was great, but I was weird into Greece. So <laughs> my parents, who were minor Beatle fans, they had the Hard Day's Night soundtrack. They were married in 60... Yeah, they were married in 64. Oh, wow. So, you know, but they, uh, they... My dad was a big folk guy. My mom, I don't think, really cared all that much. But they had a Hard Day's Night, and I think they had uh, Let It Be. Uh, right. But they Similar to me. I'll, tell, I'll get into that, but that's similar to me. Yeah, no, just not diehards, not like anti. Right. You know, the, the the way I am with uh, Taylor Swift, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got a couple Taylor. Like, I get it, Taylor Swift. Like of the moment, you know, the one of the biggest popular acts of the moment. Yeah, great, but like I don't. The heart doesn't have much of a huge connection. At any rate, uh, I think my parents got real sick of fucking Greece. I think Greece all the time made them crazy. Somebody snaking you, Danny? Oh, bite the weenie, Riz. With relish. And they got tickets to the show called Beatlemania. 
and we saw it and uh, that was the moment that changed everything the next day we went to orange's records in the century mall and i got the 45 a can't buy me love oh cool and man. that's on the orange capital label right the um, 70s the 70s capital yeah, yeah. The 70s orange capital with the kind of tan c in the left corner and uh that that just did it can't buy me And it started so young, I was five, that by the time John Lennon was dead, when I was six and a half years old, when my parents told me the next morning, I was distraught. We went to school late that next morning. Oh, wow, man. Um, So I I was in deep early, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention we got the cast album of Beatlemania that night. At the theater, oh, I think cool. it was at the Schubert, an eight-track tape because my car, <laughs> our car had an eight-track player, and we wore that eight-track out. So my first real command of Beatles music is Mitch Weissman, yep. Joe Joe Pecorino, uh, Leslie Fradkin. I'm trying to remember the names. I, I might be, I'm going to pull the album out. Do you remember the names? I remember the names of the guys that were in the movie, which is it was David Leon as John Lennon. Tom Teeley as Harrison, Ralph Castelli as Ringo, and then Mitch Weissman, who we've mentioned on this program before. <laughs> I think we've had this conversation before. I think this is, <laughs> as right-handed Paul. <laughs> right, but he looked and sounded, uh, again, not the real thing, but an incredible simulation. I can't tell right now when the hell this, uh, who's the cast on the album. Uh, at any rate, uh, it floored me. And that version of Lady Madonna with the uh, with the Martha My Dear fake out intro has always oh, been yeah. burned in my mind. One, two, three, three. Uh, you uh, move your face and open mic in a bit. Right. Okay, here we go. Cinderella, take four. Madonna. That's over the One, two, three, four. forgot about that uh mayor daly uh old mayor daly uh richard Richard daly giving a spiel uh you know his famous the cops aren't here to you know to prevent disorder they're here to promote disorder that malaprop comes right before can't buy me love it actually came before revolution come on tj yeah that cast album never issued digitally Never issued on CD. Arista has, has or had the rights for it. But at some point, the Beatles estate must have been like, you're not ever putting this on CD, guys. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I looked for it uh, streaming uh, this morning because I wanted to get in the mood because Beatlemania also played a role in in my love of the Beatles, you know, first hearing things. But no, it's not streaming. Uh, I have I have an LP of it somewhere, but it's like the budget bin version where they cram two records into one. (laughs) No gateful sleeve for you, budget buyer. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) No, man. And it has like the weird Trapper Keeper uh, graphic around the the thing that says Beatlemania on it and like a small gray and white squares. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's like the garbage version. Uh, on the America's favorite record label, Pear. <laughs> it's on Pear, not on Apple. I right. always love the, the reissue of Beatlemania is on Pear Records. Like, all right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's clever, you know. That's, that's very, that's like very, 
Liverpudland. <laughs> it is very resourceful, very post-war resourceful. Well, do you remember? Do you remember anything about seeing the show? Do you have any memories of that? Like, do you remember seeing them in their Sergeant Pepper gear and all that, or their, you know, their Abbey Road long hair version? Yeah. Do you have any takeaways from that? I have belated takeaways. Where in seeing images and seeing parts of the movie. Uh, some of the chronology's wrong. Like, I think they sing Michelle in Sergeant Pepper outfits. Which is like, <laughs> guys, 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 time out. And cool it for a minute. I, I, you just sound great, but s- s- stop for a second. <laughs> that might have been the stage manager's fault. Right? This cue. <laughs> Can we retroactively sue the costume designers of uh, Beatlemania? Uh I got to be honest, I remember the beauty, uh, uh, the costumes and the visual effects, and they played a lot of news clips. Yeah, that, that was the deal with current that. from the time, but I was so taken aback by that music. Uh, yeah, I get uh, it. They're, they're sh- and I think, the chrono- I think they went, I want to hold your hand, into She Loves You. So again, the chronology was, was, was far from perfect, but as a five-year-old, the rush of those songs can't buy me love especially and then you, you you know into hard day's night and then you get in the help era and that's the thing about that musical the beauty that i don't think the beatles must have recognized when they shut it down is even an approximate chronology live as a five-year-old six-year-old 15-year-old 20-year-old hearing the songs in that order like a red album into a blue album but live it, it's instructive. It, you're getting the sweep and mythology of the Beatles story playing out in front of you live because you see them go from early to late. I remember that magic more than I remember specifics of the show. That's really cool. Yeah. And and also, like, I mean, when that thing came out, there was such a thirst for that, for them to reunite. And there were those rumors going around in the late 70s of, like, there's that famous, like, just John and Yoko walking around Central Park and, like, Regular people like, hey, when are the Beatles getting back together? Love you, John. You know, everyone just wanted them to get back together. So that these those goofs and those well, those two producers, they had the idea. Good on them. Krebs and Lieber, which is yes. also my my favorite two man <laughs> improv group in those mid nineties. <laughs> they were they were great. Well, I can. That's, that's cool, man. I I wish I had seen Beatlemania. So I got into them later. So again, I'm a year younger than you. I'm like thirteen months younger than you. I think. And uh, I know you are junior. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to bully your ass. You about to be hazed. Is that how this works? Yeah, ironically, I'm the George. You're the <laughs> you're the Paul. Yeah, I'm Paul. Right? <laughs> oh no. Um, so my first music I loved growing up, I was like the Beach Boys, ABBA, Jim Croce, and Charlie Rich was what I lullabied me. Um, oh. I liked the Beatles, but I think my mom had like the red album. My dad had Meet the Beatles. And so it was the early stuff. And I think the early stuff was too chaotic for my little brain. And then I got into like breakdancing music, you know, which that's what we called it before it was called hip hop in the suburbs, at least. I was really into Run DMC and that kind of thing. Then I really got into Letterman, right? So here's the con. I'm just building up the context. And I, sure. I became like this Letterman freak. Like I had a little studio in the basement. So the last record, before I got into the Beatles, the last record I bought was a sound effects record because I wanted the glass breaking sound effect for when I threw my blue, blue cards into the wall that, that I put construction paper up to look like windows. That's where I'm at. Come, I can pinpoint the day I got into the Beatles. It was October 9th, mm. significant day. So what, wasn't it a dream? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. John Lennon's birthday. Yeah. So it was John Lennon. It would have been his 48th birthday. It was October 9th, 1988 at 7 p.m. Central on ABC. It was the world premiere of a brand new show called Incredible Sunday. Good evening. I'm John Davidson with an incredible hour ahead. Tonight, you'll meet a woman of uncommon courage. Heather Clark was born without arms and legs. She didn't let her disability stop her from taking a parachute jump. I'm Christina Ferrari. We're also going to the races to see an incredible new invention. These horses are not being ridden by human beings. The jockeys are radio-controlled robots. They were trying to revive That's Incredible. Whoa. It was John Davidson and Christina Ferrari were the hosts. (laughs) And... 
And so I'm watching this program because it's a Sunday at seven o'clock and we watch TV at my house. That was my life. I watch TV and this guy, so this painter comes on and he's got a canvas that's like, whatever, it was like 12 feet tall or something. And they start playing a day in the life, you know, and they played the whole song, all five minutes of it. And while the song plays, this guy, his name was Denny Dent. He was this painter and he had like three or four brushes in each hand. And he had this, he had his palette of just paint cans in front of him, all different colors. And he would just like to the music, start dancing and like whipping this paint onto the canvas until by the crescendo of a day in the life, you've got a picture of John Lennon. On our first show, we presented Denny Dent. He was the amazing performance artist who paid tribute to John Lennon by painting his portrait in the exact time it took to play one of Lennon's compositions. The response to Denny Dent's appearance was overwhelming. Ladies and gentlemen, Denny Dent. I want to say it was that one from the White Album, you know, with the glasses and the hair and just his face. And it just blew my mind. If you ever watch um, Jimmy Plays Monterey, that film that was um, D.A. Pennemaker. Uh did it but anyway the, the opening of that it's that guy denny dent and he does the same thing with hendrix so oh, like, okay the killing floor or something like that so i was in this comedy bubble you know letterman sardonic ironic taking nothing seriously stuff and then suddenly and then i see this guy who's a bit theatrical i'll give him that and people online those bozos and clowns they just call him a busker and that's not painting that's busking but that guy denny dent got me into the beatles by him doing his thing and that song kind of shaking me out like showing me that music like what look what music can do i'd never heard a song do that Tony, that's that's astonishing that you randomly found this this ABC show that this try this reboot of that. I mean, I, yeah, I go garbage. deep in 80s TV. I don't remember that. That's it didn't last long. That's ABC was trying all kinds of weird shit in 88. It was ABC that ran the SCTV reunion show, even though that was an NBC property when it hit reruns. So there's ABC was throwing whatever at the wall back then. But you got hooked on this incredible visual to arguably the greatest song that John and Paul ever put together. So yeah. you, I mean, your entry was maybe their greatest ever song. Yeah, that really shook me out. Before I really got into them, I remember being on road trips and listening. I love the song, We Can Work It Out, because it had that carnival part that goes into a waltz. Life is very short and there's no time. Sing and fighting, my friend. I have always thought being nine, ten or so, I, I remember th like, oh, I love that song. It sounds so, you know, so whenever the Beatles came on the radio on road trips, I liked it. So then I, I explored like my mom actually did have Sgt. Pepper on a cassette. So I, I suddenly went into this like we had a, a room in the upstairs called the study. I grew up in a townhouse, whatever. There was a, what was called the study and no one ever hung out there, but that's where the Panasonic turntable was with a cassette player. So I find myself hanging out in the study, listening to Sergeant Pepper. So then I, I really got into that. Like 
I loved, I loved songs like fixing a hole. I like those weird ones, you know, I, of course I like Lucy in the sky and all that, but I really gravitated towards fixing the hole and like lovely Rita that, that moment when they do the, is it the comb? Whatever that little weird thing is with the. That to me, that filled my head with like, Oh, I didn't know a song could do that. And I found it to be inspiring, you know? Two of, I think, the best songs in Sgt. Pepper, by the way, and both just great Paul songs that are on uh, Fixing a Hole is so weird. And <laughs> Lovely yeah. Rita is also really fucking weird. People who dismiss <laughs> Paul McCartney and some of the lighter stuff, even Maxwell Silverhammer, one of the most derided songs by John and George, succeeds because it's weird that Paul McCartney's writing a song about a murderer, yeah. a serial killer. He's not singing about that's what stops him from being Tom Jones. I mean, that's it, it's why <laughs> I defend Paul McCartney severely because even the quote unquote pap is weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I dug it. I, uh, yeah, so that that's what got, and then I became like a Beatles freak. Like people were annoyed with me, you know, how much I got into the Beatles. I remember I saw, I remember a, a kid named Matt Sear wrote in my yearbook at, at the end of junior high, eighth grade. He said, Letterman's cool, but the Beatles suck. Because <laughs> that's what I was known as, the kid who really liked Letterman and the kid who adored the Beatles. Just for a point of reference here, I do not go as deep on Letterman as you do, but I loved him so much. I would videotape all the anniversary shows. I have the whole week of his Chicago shows on tape from 89, I think. Yep, that was 89, uh, yeah. So yeah, I was, and as much as I liked CBS Letterman, I got on, not 82 early, but I probably got on Letterman 84, 85, 86, because as an only yeah. child, I did have a TV in my room. I'd stay up all night and watch. I would watch and record everything. I have every WKRP on tape uh, <laughs> on their 85 airings on Channel 9. I have seven VHS tapes of Christmas episodes of every 80s sitcom. This is a Jew, by the way. I love Christmas episodes. So if you're looking for the Amen or the Alice Christmas, you, you know who to talk to. I forgot um, about Amen. Sh Sherman yeah. Helmsley. Great. One of the great comedic actors ever, Sherman Helmsley. Yeah. Um, he, he, did you know he was really into psychedelic music? Like crazy. Was he really? Yeah. He, he like collected like crazy German 70s like, you know, 20 minute psychedelic songs. If I ever met him, the first question I'd ask would not be about the Jeffersons. It would be, what do you think of the crazy world of Arthur Brown's hit fire? <laughs> I am the God of hellfire and I bring you fire. Produced by Pete Townsend, by the yes. way. Yes. Yeah, yes. Produced by Townsend. Yes. I love the crazy world of Arthur Brown. It's such a great album. And the fire poem that precedes it. Yeah. That's back when 104, Magic 104 was like at 2 a.m. If you listen, that's when the weird stuff came out. That's when they play like <laughs> the strange slow version of Land of a Thousand Dances. I said, Right, uh, right. You didn't hear that like at four after the Supremes. You only heard that at like two in the morning. But yeah, I forget what that's similar, called. Yeah, uh, someone in the Headhunters. Cannibal. Cannibal in the Headhunters did that land of a thousand dances. Yeah, man. It scared me. It sounds like there's people being murdered in it. Day partying. That's what that's background. called. When I worked radio, it was, yeah, it was, I started on overnights and it was like, that's when we played Metallica or whatever. But then around 4 a.m., suddenly we start playing Counting Crows, you know, <laughs> there was this weird switch that happened and you had to make sure it wasn't a train wreck from like, yeah, like we would also play Megadeth or whatever. So you, you had to make sure you can't go from Megadeth to John Cougar Mellencamp, you know. <laughs> so watch your top of the hour song there. <laughs> that's that's really funny uh, we mentioned covers earlier let me just put a button on this by saying that the most offensive cover in the history of recorded music is big yellow taxi by the counting crows <laughs> fuck that fuck whoever told me it was a good idea I, i'm at the counting crows and Joe, love the black crows not a counting crows fan uh that cover in particular big yellow taxi like some covers just stay the same and don't offer anything this one detracts from the original don't it's gone. 
We're going to talk more about the big yellow taxi cover coming up next to TV show taxi. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, I, I bring up the Letterman thing to, to say that you and I, that's another kind of cool connection that we have that he was, a he, he's one of my biggest comedy influences uh, yeah. as well. And all the, all the rich, uh, the rich hall stuff from the early days, like yeah. all that. Stuff. Yeah. He was a writer on the morning show and, uh, I used to tape it. I used to tape it every night, and I and that's all I did was watch those tapes. So, I was weird. <laughs> I, uh, me too, man. I memorized all uh, all the KRPs. Every fault. There's only twelve faulty towers, but I still know every word from stand up all night watching them. Um, oh, so funny. we we're we're similarly influenced with that. And what's interesting about the Letterman connection is even his er, his earliest band iteration had at least one Beatle diehard in the band. Will, I guess, right? Doesn't Will yeah. play? Will Lee plays in a Beatles uh, band, doesn't he? Will, Will Lee is the founder of the Fab Foe, F-A-U-X, yeah. the yep. co-founder, uh, with uh, the guy from Conan's band, Jimmy. I'm forgetting his last name right now. Love right. you, Jimmy, if you're ever listening. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure all the, the one of the best Beatles cover bands ever is listening to this. But uh, uh, yeah, so there's a cool Letterman Beatles connection as well. And of course... Uh, I remember Julian was on when he was very young. Julian Lennon was on yeah. Letterman in like 85. Yeah. Yoko was on a bunch. Yeah. Another thing about that, like before I discovered the Beatles, so before October 9th of 1988, for those couple years when I wasn't into music, what I do remember liking were certain songs that Schaefer played into the commercial breaks. Things like Cosmic Slop by Funkadelic and things like the Beatles, like the first time I ever heard Helter Skelter actually was Sid McGinnis on guitar going into it and Anton Fig like rolling, you know, and then it was over in 12 seconds. And I was like, I want to hear the rest of that song. And then, well, let me segue into this because the first time I bought the White Album, I didn't even know I had bought the White Album. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make, I'm going to make this uh, make no. sense. <laughs> Please, the floor is yours. Okay. So I go into Rose Records, right? If you remember those, that was a, oh, yeah. a chain. I don't know how far they reached, but it was suburban Chicago, at least. Um, right. And so this is when I'm into the Beatles and I like I got allowance money, you know, for taking out the garbage and checking the mail. I'm doing very little else. <laughs> anyway, so I go into Rose Records. I'm like, I, I, what's the next Beatles record I'm going to buy? What's the next? So I see on cassette, there's something called The Beatles, part one and part two. And I'm like, oh, this must be some cool greatest hits package. And I look at the song titles. You can only see one one side of them because it's a double cassette thing. Um, and it's like, I've never heard of any of these songs. I got to get this. This must be great. you know. And it, it the cover wasn't white. It was like Xerox copies of the four pictures, their four the individual. Yeah. On the cassette with, with, with the blue spines. And also the, the running order on the cassette is different. And I actually prefer it. And I, cause that's how I first heard it. It goes from everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey into helter skelter. When you hear it that way, it makes so much sense. It's so good. And then sexy Sadie opens up side four into honey pie. Like to me, that's how it should have been. Uh, we we need to put a pin in this because <laughs> we have to make a topic that most of the Beatles cassette running orders are different, especially when they reissued the first four albums when the CDs came out on tape. We will go over track listings and we will dedicate a whole show to this because yes to everything you said about the difference in the white album running order. And when you dig deeper on the different cassette running orders, which are, <laughs> it's like Dave Dexter who, Butchered and produced all the Capitol albums. The USA stuff and like mixed them all funny. Yeah. Which are among my favorite albums because those are the ones I grew up on. It's as if he took acid and then put them on cassette. He it's didn't like, like he, the Beatles, right? That's what I'd read that he actually did not like the Beatles. And so he was just kind of like, eh. I think he thought they were the afterthought, you know, boy band of the week. Right. The, the cassettes. I know people are salivating hearing this this teaser, <laughs> but trust me on this. The cassettes uh, are weird. <laughs> Abbey Road, maybe their most seminal album, uh, is different, and it's just worth uh, it's worth talking about. Yeah, it's different. I think it even opens up with a different song. Oh, TJ's going to go get it. You've got it right there. What do you got there? Just to confirm. I didn't want to say it without confirming. I'm holding the Abbey Road Yeah, cassette. that's the one. That's the exact one my mom had. 
Side one opens with here comes the sun into yep. something yep. and come together kicks off side two. Now yeah. I didn't, I heard it on vinyl originally, and this goes back to I'll quickly kind of button my, uh, my journey with the fact that I started building my collection. Thanks to being a privileged only child in the city as well, <laughs> living blocks from Rose records and wax tracks and later sound warehouse and, the second hand tunes on Clark. I grew up with all those stores and parents who only focused on me. So I started building like every, other kids' baseball cards or movie stuff has been all Beatles and solo Beatles since I've been about five or six. I've amassed this weird collection <laughs> that's focused primarily less on memorabilia and more on iterations of their music. I, I, I'm the nerd that loves the different reissues and the different labels and the different pressings and packagings. So the yeah, the forensics. Yeah, the forensics behind it. The the why there's an author out of New Orleans named Bruce Spizer, who is kind of like a how do I put this? He's not niche, but he's almost like a micro Mark Lewison in that his focus is on the American albums. And he's got all these hardcover series. He's a lawyer in New Orleans. His books have been like, I didn't get into them until like my 30s. And they became some of my favorite, another topic is favorite Beatles books. But the cassettes are amazing. But I've been collecting my first grade show and tell. I destroyed Japanese import picture sleeves because I put thumbtacks on them for the wall at show and tell. I, I, I broke down in tears at Tamarack Day Camp in 1983 uh, as a nine-year-old because I brought Instant Karma to play for camp show and tell on the, on the record player at camp and it melted in the sun. And I was, oh. <laughs> I mean, an apple pressing of it. Now, there, I learned later there are a dime a dozen. You can walk anywhere and get an apple pressing. But it was yours. But it was mine as a nine-year-old. So... I got in so deep so early. They became, I mean, I was, as we talked about Letterman, WKRP, SCTV, early Saturday Night not early SNL, but like early 80s SNL. Right. I, I was a Martin comedy Short, nerd. Eddie Murphy. That era, the 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 proverbial Piscopo era, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, yep, Joe Piscopo. On uh, the phone? Was he the one on the phone? Anyway. In the intro? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I forget. A lot of random white guys have been on the phone on SNL intros. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, they were, the Beatles were my predominant thing. And I had parents who blessed it. And concurrently, I was learning how to play piano, teaching myself how to play. Oh, that's so, so great. I wish yeah. I had done that. Well, I, you know what? Ringo got me to play drums. Like I figured out I am the walrus with dowel rods from a, an industrial arts project that I broke so that I could make drumsticks. <laughs> And play on the pillows of my bed. I, I The first two songs I learned were I Am the Walrus. And this is just hands. When I learned like, oh, I have to use my foot too. Like that bass drum isn't just a circle that holds <laughs> another drum set. I remember being like, oh, okay. This is harder than I thought. Okay. But once <laughs> but Helter you Skelter that first Ringo Phil and I Am the Walrus. Yeah. It's, the power. Do do. And locked in, again, locked in with Paul's bass. I mean, yeah. the beauty of that moment. So, yeah, learning how to, I, my parents took me out of piano lessons when I was very young, when I was seven, because I was playing stuff I heard around the house. I was already playing TV themes and playing Beatles stuff and playing commercials and Disney stuff by ear. Yeah, you have so, an ear. You definitely have an ear. Well, that's that's how I made my name playing improv piano for 20 some years now, is that yeah. I still, at 46 years old, can't read a, a sheet of music. I can read a chord chart, but I don't know how to read or write music. And part of the reason I never learned is, you know, who else fucking doesn't is Paul McCartney. I know, man. So I was just I'm about okay. to say that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're in good company. Yeah. Um, to circle back on that yeah. instant karma tragedy. Um, it reminds me of the episode of Night Court where Harry Anderson's Mel Torme records were left on, a, <laughs> on the furnace and melted. That's right, but what happens at the end? <laughs> what does happen? Don't they, he gets them back somehow, right? Doesn't Me, some... Doesn't Mel come back and bring them to him? Doesn't Mel Torme make a guest appearance? Oh, you're right. Them to him, I think. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Mel Torme comes on the show. You're right. I only saw it once, you know, <laughs> like when it came out in '87 or whatever. Yeah, that was a rough era. Second Webster reference on a Beatles podcast <laughs> never been done. Webster's house burnt down so they could do something interesting with the with the next season. They decided they'd move him from a house to an apartment building with more characters. So they, 
And that, they that's burned the, it down. the famous phrase, ma'am, George, I'm scared. Because Webster <laughs> called his parents, ma'am and George. I know we're getting yeah. quite silly, but it's rain it in. I mean, do you remember this is also Second City related? Remember when Valerie Harper wanted more money or whatever her dispute was with on the Valerie show? So they they killed her off in a fire. And that's how they started like season two or whatever the hell it was. It was like, Mom's dead. And then they cut to a commercial break and then Sandy Duncan comes in and <laughs> we never talk about mom ever again. And then the laugh track. <laughs> returns that is one of my favorite tv moments in tv you got that story 100 right valerie harper was like hey uh this is my second solo hit show i want more money now there's a hit and nbc was like what the fuck else do you want we, we the show's named after you it was called valerie and then i think you're right season two they kill her off go to commercial Killed her off. i think it was Here a fire man yeah for, that's right it was like a gruesome way for 1986 television or eighty-seven. yeah I mean, and I think they, I even remember the twin brothers holding up a picture that would have been her, but even that was all burnt up. You know what I mean? Like, they got rid of her, man. A charred photo of Rhoda. Yeah. Is what they had. That, that's also the title of her autobiography, by the way. <laughs> but they, uh, uh, they also changed the show's name two other times. It was Valerie mm-hmm. and then Valerie's family. family. And they're like, fuck it. We'll call it the Hogan family. The Hogan family. Get rid of her entirely. <laughs> Gone. So, yes, uh, Beatles forensics and kind of piecing all the stuff together. My collection is my most valuable thing. I don't play everything all the time. I've got 45s. I probably haven't played since, you know, the 80s. But I wow. love I love holding them. I love look because I've got hundreds. And I love looking at them and holding them. I still love when I go into like an amoeba when I'm out west or and this happened a few times at amoeba with their huge 45 boxes uh, or Reckless Records here, or mm-hmm. Lori's Planet of Sound, or any of the great, oh, yeah. the great record stores here, there's still stuff I don't have. And as long as it's not going to, you know, bankrupt me as a freelance musician entertainer with a four-year-old, you know, the, the days of buying a $75 Japanese EP of You're Gonna Lose That Girl are like, you know, because it's on <laughs> green vinyl. I, you, know, you know, I think my kid needs shoes. So I may use that money on a pair of shoes for him. Um, yeah, but I was lucky that I bought so much of this shit or my parents bought for me, Tony, before it was crazy expensive in the early mid eighties. Yeah. So I've yeah. got a nice collection that didn't cost me a fortune to build. And, uh, I, I treasure it. It's still after my, my, my kid and my wife and my friends, it's my favorite thing. I totally get it, man. I just remember I was going to list off a couple memories I have of just hearing them for the first time. I, yeah, uh, please. So I remember listening on that cassette, that white album cassette, and seeing that a song called Revolution Number no. 9 was coming up. And I liked the single Revolution. That's the one I'd heard. I had just heard Revolution Number no. 1, which still is not my favorite. <laughs> it's, it's, it's way down there on my Beatles catalog of favorites. So I was like, okay, if Revolution Number no. 1 is mellow, and regular revolution is like this rock song with that distorted guitar. Revolution number nine is going to be amazing. It's going to be this. I, I don't even know. It's going to be like. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. So the song starts, you know, and it's this guy saying number nine, which, you know, that's like on those library records of sound effects or whatever. You have people in the band saying like, this is what this is. So it's some engineer saying number nine a lot. Here's what I remember. I just kept waiting for the song to kick in. I'm like, okay, this is just like a funny little intro. It'll be over soon. When when are they going to get to this like around a revolution? And there's that moment that's like, what, seven minutes in where the piano, there's a piano that's like, da-ding-a-ding. This is it. It took a while, but this is it. They're doing it. It's happening. And then you, all you hear is, all that line, all that line. And then it fades into the strings. And you're, I was, <laughs> I remember being like, oh, okay. <laughs> 
but then you only even on the tape you only get one more song after that to make everything happy and brighten everything up yeah yeah with the disney with the technicolor i've never taken acid for as much marijuana as i've ingested i've just never tripped but i've had friends who have described revolution number nine to good night as being in a trip and coming out of one (laughs) i guess i could see that sure yeah yeah especially when that falsetto voice kicks in the birds are singing and okay it's a new it's a new morning it's a new day let's make some coffee or whatever so yeah any other songs that grabbed you at a certain time let me get into this real quick like so okay my dad was a spanish teacher right and so he in the 80s he used to have this cassette cassette player i think it's what teachers had it was a cassette cassette player and the students would record them speaking into this cassette player it was a it was an exercise so my dad would come home and grade all these cassettes and listen to them and grade them so this cassette cassette player played regular tapes backwards right it was like one of those cassettes that has a little handle a cassette player has a little handle on it and the little the buttons on it you know it's, it's probably probably made by realistic or tozai exactly yes it, it's rectangular has a speaker right. on it that's how you listen to it anyway so i started putting my beatles that's where i first heard turn me on dead man on revolution number nine this is where only child weirdness steps in my favorite song still is by the Beatles, Strawberry Fields Forever. So, and it has backwards elements in it. So I put that song in there. And I actually, I fell in love with the way Strawberry Fields Forever sounded backwards. And I would listen to that song backwards. And I love, like, I could even sing it. It was like, <laughs> E-Rebors, that's Strawberry. <laughs> now, that's all I'll give you because the rest is embarrassing. You know what I mean? When you exhaust, like you exhaust something that you love so much, but you're just like wringing out all the... (laughs) as much as you can that's what that was i was trying to get that much more enjoyment out of strawberry fields forever that i i, I loved it backwards that's amazing I, lo- I didn't even know tape players did that that's i think it was just this kind of instructional one although with vinyl back now it's much easier but unless you did the kind of uh, that kind of back uh rewind on cds there was a generation that never got to listen to anything backwards. I spun my Magical Mystery Tour vinyl backwards. Yeah, what was going on. Another thing I remember real quick was, I remember like I had the White Album going in my room. This is like when I'm 15 maybe, and Your Blues is playing. And and I have it cranked like pretty loud. And it's a it's like a weeknight or whatever, it's at night. And I have, my, my parents had like a tennis racket and I'm playing like Your Blues on my tennis racket. And I'm getting so into it. And I'm on my bed and I jump up on my off my bed and I slam the, the tennis racket into the ceiling and I make a hole in the ceiling with the tennis racket in my room. And I'm like, oh, shit. And so I take my mom had the john lennon album the original one imagine and so i take the insert of of john the picture of john and like a goat that he you know he took a picture of him with a goat that was kind of like ram his his fuck you right. call about ram right and i thumbtack that to the ceiling over the hole <laughs> <laughs> and it, la- it was there for like a few years or a year or two before my parents were like what's that doing up there we need to repaint <laughs> and i was like uh oh uh oh i want to die <laughs> Mother, look, I know you're of the sky. Dad, I know you're of the earth. I am from the universe. Yeah, man. Uh, it, you know what it's worth, a hole in the yeah. ceiling with a tennis <laughs> racket. But those oh. are some of the memories I have, just listening to the Beatles, like discovering them, that age. Yeah. And I think that's 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 all we're trying to do with all these reissues and stuff. And like, 
un, out forensics, forensics yeah. and the let it be thing coming up, like footage, like we're all trying to feel that again, you know, over and over. We always kind of talk, or I always talk about the, the beauty of the Beatles and, and these kind of lush terms, but it's true that with music that uniformly varied and excellent and a story that interesting and beautiful, it never gets old. It's it's the reason that Beatles music often sounds out of place on oldie stations. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's incredible, uh, the, the Motown stuff holds up, but it still sounds of an era. The Beatles stuff to me has always sounded of every era because it, it was always just so different. And you mentioned being an early Beach Boys fan. I know we've already been going nine hours, so we'll, we'll, we'll wrap <laughs> in a second. But, you know, the when you get a little older and learn of the kind of friendly competition between Paul and Brian Wilson and what that spurned each other to do, the Beach Boys are just a crucial part of the Beatles story. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, for sure. Like them and the stones, like, yeah, there was a competitive one upsmanship there that really, yeah, was integral to them getting better and making that those original choices and trying new things. Well, that's what's so cool about the other Beatles contemporaries that, that McCartney always said that he wanted Helter Skelter to be louder than anything the Who ever recorded. Yeah, yeah. So they gave a fuck. They, they listened to the music around them and loved it. I'm pretty sure, yeah, Paul McCartney had read Pete Townsend's description of I Can See for Miles because that was his number one in his pocket, which was never a number one. He just thought it was going to be the most, he was trying to make the most exciting song in the world. It's a great song. Well, here's a poke at you You're gonna choke on it too You're gonna lose that smile Because of the wild I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and miles I could see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles Oh, it is a cool song. It's not my favorite by them, but it is, it's a unique one of a kind song. You know, it doesn't have a regular drum beat. Yeah. He was trying to capture this energy onto a, which that's Townsend's thing with energy and Mirababa and that like spirituality he was trying to find through rock and roll. But yeah, Paul heard that, you know, read that, I should say, read the description of this song that I don't even think was out yet. And that's where Helter Skelter, I think, came from. I think. I, I never knew that. I've always loved I Can See For Miles because it's just so weird and it's just so driving. It almost feels like, it feels like the the Who doing a Birds song. <laughs> well, yeah, with the guitar. Yeah, that guitar does sound pretty 12-string. Yeah, but I love the, the one-note guitar solo. Pretty good. Uh-huh. Uh, it's pretty great. Yeah, Well, man. this was great. I mean, the beauty of this, and anybody listening to this could go on and on about their moments of loving the Beatles, but that first one, no matter what age you are at, is it's like you're always kind of trying to chase that high. I mentioned I've only smoked pot. Never, I mean, <laughs> little Valium in college, because why not? I'm in college, I'll take Valium. Yeah, hope I die before I get old. And more Who references. Coming up next, <laughs> Athena. We, we talked about Athena already. We're now in reruns on our 200th episode. All right, Tony, that was a ball. I can't wait for next week when next week, I promise, we're going to take the four mid-70s Ringo albums. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. Now, who's on the sticking a thousand of the arrows of the